Hello, and welcome to Ask a Historian. I'm Matthew Wilkinson, historian with Heritage Mississauga. We invite you to send in your questions and we will explore the fascinating stories of the city of Mississauga together. Like, subscribe, and follow us and stay up to date on all the heritage happenings with Heritage Mississauga. Well, on this week's episode of Ask a Historian, we kind of return to our roots, if you will, and that is with three questions that we had come in in the last little while here at Heritage Mississauga. And our first one comes from Raymond. And where did the name Arendelle come from? Well, the name Arendelle comes from a historic property, namely that of Reverend James McGraw. Born in Ireland in 1769, McGraw was educated at Trinity College, Dublin. He applied to the, to the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel for a colonial missionary post, and he came to Upper Canada, what is now Ontario, with his family in 1826. In 1827, he was appointed to the Toronto Mission on the Credit River, where he served in a simple white frame church, which had been built just earlier that year. The church was named St. Peter's. This is today St. Peter's Arendelle, which is at the corner of, of uh, Dundas Street and Mississauga Road. The church we see today is the second church on the site. Reverend McGraw uh, ministered to the first church. Uh, McGraw acquired considerable land in the area and he built his own home here, which he dubbed Arendelle in 1828. The name was later adopted by the settlement, which developed nearby. McGraw served, as, uh, served the parish until his death in 1851. Reverend McGraw, uh, McGraw acquired property in what is now the Credit Woodlands area of Mississauga, and he added additional acreage to his land in 1834, amassing some 700 acres of land. His sons oversaw the building of a large log house in 1827, which was replaced in 1832 by a substantial three-story wood frame house, which was dubbed, again, Arendelle. Arendelle meaning Ireland in the valley or Aaron in the dale. The McGraw property was bordered, just to give yourself a modern sense of the, the, the land that uh, Reverend McGraw controlled at a period, for a period of time. Uh, it was bordered on the north by what is today Burnhamthorpe Road, to the east by Arendelle Station Road, to the south by Dundas Street, and to the west by the Credit River. Part of his property he severed and sold to his son, Thomas McGraw, in 1843. This was the land closer to, uh, to Arendelle Station Road. Another son, William McGraw, who lived between 1817 and 1888, remained on the home property, and he inherited it when Reverend James McGraw died in 1851. There was other subdivisions of the property uh, through uh, several of his children and grandchildren over time, but the, the, the primary estate or the main estate, including the old Arendelle house, uh, went, to, went to William, his son. Uh, the first Arendelle house, and again, a large three-story uh, wood-framed house, uh, I guess in the, our count it would be the second Arendelle house because it was uh, re, uh, it was a log cabin replaced by uh, again a, a, a wood frame house. Uh, the wood frame house it was a large three story with a three sided veranda, uh, largest house in its in in the immediate vicinity by all accounts, and certainly spoke about the affluence and importance of the the individuals that uh, that lived on that property. Uh, it stood until March third of eighteen sixty seven when it was lost to fire. William McGraw oversaw the, the, the building of the new Arendelle House later in 1867, being even more substantial than the first. Built of stone and brick and consisting of some 20 rooms and a gracious veranda that wrapped around three sides of the house, it truly was a grand estate and much, much larger than the, uh, the previous Arendelle House had been. This Arendelle was a landmark in the community. When William died in 1888, the property was left to his nephew, Captain James Frederick McGraw, 
although the captain did not reside in the grand old home. The last occupants of the home were William's sister, Anna Cordelia, and William's niece, Minnie. When James Frederick died in 1902, a grand lawn, a grand lawn party was held by the McGraw family as a, finer, a final farewell to the old estate. On May 31st, 1904, the executors of the estate of William McGraw sold the property to Samuel, Stephen, George, Thomas, Arthur, and Harry Price, who established what was called the Arendelle Stock Farm. The farm would later be renamed Price and Sons Dairy, one of the finest dairy farms in the vicinity. The end of the Grand Old, uh, the end of Grand Old Arendelle, the, the house itself, came just before midnight on Saturday, June 12th of 1920. The house was uh, the, the entire area surrounding the house, the, the village of Arendelle, were uh, faced the brunt or felt the brunt of a terrific storm. Uh, and old Arendelle was the, the house was struck by lightning and was lost to fire. The house was gutted. There's some pictures of they were the remnants of the burnt out shell of the house. The nearby village itself, what we know as Arendelle, to get back to your original question, Raymond, uh, the nearby village has had several names over its history, including Toronto, as it was uh, laid out uh, originally, Credit, Springfield, and Springfield on the Credit. In 1900, village residents chose to rename the village, and they chose Arendelle after the Grand McGraw estate. And again, Arendelle translating to Aaron in the Dale or Ireland in the Valley. The village of Arendelle became part of the town of Mississauga in 1968. The name Arendelle uh, is something that became quite popular in the surrounding community as it's developed over time. And you'll see the word Arendelle repeated over and over again. And things like that. the former name for the University of Toronto uh, at Mississauga campus was Arendelle College. Uh, the name Aaron Mills takes its uh, its uh, nod to Arendelle uh, as, as kind of the, the subdivision development of the 1960s and 70s. Um, but the name Arendelle was repeated over and over again on our landscape. But it really comes back to a single individual and a single house, uh, and that being Reverend James McGraw of St. Peter's Anglican Church, Arendelle, and his uh, his estate, Arendelle, which once stood within what is now the Credit Woodlands area of Mississauga. So I hope that answers the question, Raymond. Our second question this week comes from Kim, and it's kind of tied to our first one. The question is, when was the Credit Woodlands subdivision built? Uh, well, we as we just explored, it, uh, the, the Credit Woodlands subdivision uh, connects to the land that was once the uh, Arendelle estate of Reverend James McGraw, although not a, a direct link back because it, uh, it was the Price family that uh, that uh, purchased the McGraw estate and then developed the Price and Sons dairy farm. And eventually it was under the Price's direction that the first phases of the Credit Woodland subdivision was developed. So uh, in, in short, Kim, there's not one specific date because the uh, Credit Woodlands was built in phases or uh, different uh, series of plans that were developed over a short period of time. Um, but the Credit Woodlands itself was built largely between 1956 and 1970. And again, as I said, it was built in stages with several plans charting the course of the subdivision's overall development. Just to give you a, a kind of a, a, an inkling of it, and I may not have them all here, but uh, so uh, it started in the south. Uh, the so building started in the south down by what is the Credit Woodlands and Dundas Street. 
and gradually progress northwards towards Burnhamthorpe Road. The, the area at the very north at Burnhamthorpe Road uh, was kind of the last area to, uh, the last major area to be developed. A few residential su uh, side streets were developed later on, but uh, the, the bulk of the, of, the, of the Credit Woodland subdivision progressed in that manner. Um, and the much-discussed traffic circle dates to between 1962 and 1963. Uh, Springfield Public School in the heart of, Credit Woodland, of the Credit Woodland subdivision opened its doors in 1969. Uh, but to get back to the plans themselves, uh, the earliest plan for their, their uh, Credit Woodland's uh, development was registered by Arendelle Developments Limited on July 16, 1956, and it's known as Plan 550. That was followed by Plan 597, which was registered on April 21st, 1958, by Air, again, by Arendelle Developments Limited. And Arendelle Developments Limited had their hands in two other plans that would follow, Plan 609, February 11th, 1959, and Plan 711 on June 10th of 1964. That was the bulk of the subdivision uh, 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 of uh, Central and South uh, Credit Woodlands. And then as you progress your way northwards, uh, Plan 745 was uh, developed by Rice Construction Company Limited, uh, registered on December 20th of 1965. And then up at the very north uh, uh, of, uh, of Credit Woodlands towards Burnhamthorpe, uh, Plan 855 registered May 2nd, 1969 by Carbondale Holdings Limited, which had purchased property from the prices and from their Arendelle Developments Limited. So again, largely between 1956 when the first plan was registered um, and 1970 when the last plan had finished its uh, construction phases. Again, that's not all encompassing. There are a few other uh, side streets who were developed later on, but that is the bulk of what is Credit Woodlands today, developed again between 1956 and 1970. So uh, Kim, lots of numbers and dates there, but hopefully that answers your question. And our third and final question this week comes from Omar. Uh, and he's asking, what is the story of the large boat at the mouth of the harbor at the Credit River? Uh, well, Omar, thank you for, for asking. One of my favorite subjects to talk about, uh, old boats. Um, and uh, the the uh, it, it's actually known as a laker or a, a, a bulk freighter that sailed on the Great Lakes. Uh, this ship is known as the Ridgetown. She is, or was, as I mentioned, a Great Lakes freighter and serves today as a breakwater for the harbor at Port Credit. Since 1974, the Ridgetown has been a familiar sight at the entrance of the Port Credit Harbor. For many residents, it's hard to remember a time that she was not guarding the mouth of the Credit River. But the Ridgetown lived a long, long life plying her trade on the Great Lakes as a bulk freighter long before she came to be sunk as a breakwater in Port Credit back in 1974. For anyone, there's lots of pictures out there of of the Ridgetown. Um, and if you look closely under the uh, the bow of the ship where it says Ridgetown, you can just make out some faint letters uh, that, uh, that 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 ghostly appear underneath the word Ridgetown. And that is to say that the Ridgetown is not the original name of the ship, and the original identity is peeking through the uh, the peeling paint and and rust of the of the of the hull today. Uh, the Ridgetown was built as the SS William E. Corey, and Corey is spelled C-O-R-E-Y. She was a steel-hulled, propeller-driven Great Lakes freighter. 
The quarry, as she was known, was built by the Chicago Shipbuilding Company and was launched on June 24, 1905. She served as the flagship for the Pittsburgh Steamship Company and sailed out of Cleveland, Ohio. Today, she is the fourth oldest surviving Great Lakes freighter, or as I mentioned earlier, Laker. She was the near sister ship of several of, of, of other ships that were built around the same time. The Henry C. Frick, which was in service between 1905 and 1972, was renamed Mishapakoten in 1964 and retired in 1972. Albert H. Gary, in service between 1905 and 1972, renamed the R.E. Webster in 1964 and scrapped in 1973. And the George W. Perkins, who was in service between 1905 and 1981, renamed the Westdale in 1964, sold the Pearson Steamships Limited of Mississauga and renamed the H.C. Heimbecker in 1977, and finally scrapped in 1981. So of the four sister ships, the only one that survives today is the Ridgetown, or what was formerly the SS w, uh, William E. Quarry, and again, serving as a breakwater at Port Credit. The quarry's primary job was to transport uh, iron ore, and she would transport iron ore from the, uh, the the ports along Lake Superior and deliver it into the southern ports along either Lake Michigan or Lake Huron or even down into, into Lake Erie. One fascinating story about the, the, the quarry came in her first few months of service. The quarry was many of ships, many ships that were caught in the infamous Matafa Blow on Lake Superior on November 28th of 1905. During the hurricane force storm, the quarry was driven hard aground onto the Gull Island Reef in the Apostle Islands on Lake Superior. The storm raged for three days and wrecked 30 vessels and claimed the lives of 78 sailors, and several ships were lost in the storm. Many mariners recalled the Matafa Blow, the worst witch of November storm on the Great Lakes. The quarry survived, barely. After taking a terrible beating and being driven hard aground, a massive effort was required to free her. And at one time, the salvage force included 158 men, four steamers, and two tugs. On December 10th of 1905, the quarry was finally pulled free and refloated. The cost of salvage and repairs totaled some $100,000. Remember, the quarry was only a, a couple months old at that time. The quarry was, re, or was repaired and resumed service in mid-1906. The quarry, having sailed the Great Lakes for over 54 years, was laid up at Duluth in early 1960. In 1963, the quarry was sold to the Upper Lakes Shipping Company and renamed the Ridgetown. The aging Ridgetown served for several more years until she was laid up at Toronto on November 17, 1969, effectively bringing an end to her career. The quarry, or the Ridgetown, had faithfully traversed the Great Lakes for 64 years. In May of 1970, she was sold to the Canadian Dredge and, uh, and Dry Dock Company of Toronto and was brought to Nanticoke on Lake, on Lake Erie and scuttled as a temporary breakwater. Later refloated, the Ridgetown was brought to Port Credit on June 21, June 21st, 1974, where she was loaded with stone and cement and was sunk to become a permanent breakwater for the harbour. The ship registry for the Ridgetown closed on June 19, 1974, and the Ridgetown is officially owned by the city of Mississauga today. 
So with that, uh, I hope, Omar, we answered your question. It's always fascinating to look at the stories of the ships of the Great Lakes and even uh, more particular for me, the storms that uh, or the Witches of November, as they were called, that uh, that raged across the lakes and, uh, and many of the stories that come out of it. It's, it's kind of neat to think that our very own Ridgetown ties to that uh, those, those epic tales. Um, so with that, thank you, for everyone, for joining us for another episode of Ask a Historian. And please send in your questions and we'll keep exploring the stories of the city of Mississauga here at Ask a Historian. Like, subscribe, and follow us and stay up to date on all the heritage happenings with Heritage Mississauga. And we'll see you in future episodes of Ask a Historian.